Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Men with Jim and Jay, where we break down the breakdown men are having while trying not to have breakdowns ourselves. On today's show, we're chatting about anger, which let's be honest, could lead to a live on the air breakdown. And we'll close up shop today with picking teams on top clowns. Top clowns of all time. Top clowns of all time. We're going all the way back to the start of things to establish our top clowns. Whatever you're doing, you are not going to want to miss that. Yeah. Speaking of clowns and dressing up and makeup mm-hmm. and wigs and costumes, you were with a bunch of clowns this weekend, right? At yeah, the, uh, absolutely. At the Atlanta Dragon Con? What was Dragon that Dragon like? Con, yeah. Not just the Atlanta Dragon Con. I mean, there's only one Dragon Con. Dragon you know. Con, which takes place in Atlanta. It happens right. to take place yes. in Atlanta, but yes. yes. Yeah. No, great. Had a great time at Dragon Con as I do every year. That's an annual tradition for me to attend the Dragon Con. Always a blast. People coming from all over, dressing up, celebrating our various fandoms. Do you dress up? It's like three days, right? Or two, it's, two and a well, half it's days? Five days total. Five days. It starts on Thursday night and goes all the way to Monday. So To Monday. Okay. Do you dress up for all of the days or just one of the day? Do you do different dress ups? What's your cosplay routine? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge cosplayer in terms of like, I mean, there are people that are like, they like spend their whole year planning it out and making costumes and stuff. I'm not into it on that level, but wow. I usually try to dress up, you know, at least one day. So I had three different cosplays this year, which is the most I've ever done. So I've done like two or one before. And then the other days I just go street clothes. It's fun to dress up and everybody's dressed up and feels like a big costume party. I've still yet to make it to Dragon Con. I definitely need to do it at some point. I don't think I've got any good cosplay. I might just have to be in street clothes, but I'm open to dressing up as something that yeah. would be fun. I just don't have anything. I might have to do a DIY costume of some kind. You can always just throw something together. It's fun. I recommend it for everybody. You got to try it at some point. It's worth worth experiencing the Dragon Con. Also, I just want to acknowledge we are recording now episode number 20 of Breaking Down Men, season one, episode 20. When we first talked about doing the podcast, we set as a goal to do 20 episodes. We said, like, let's do 20 and see how it goes. And if you are listening to this podcast, then we have accomplished our goal of doing 20 episodes Mm -hmm. and putting them out. So I feel like we should acknowledge and toast to our ability to have accomplished something that we set out to do. If episode 20 can reach just one listener, <laughs> we will have. <laughs> we will have accomplished. accomplished our goal. Yeah. So kudos for all the hard work putting out the podcast and hopefully here's to 20 more. 20 more. <laughs> Happy 20th. So today we were talking about anger. Yeah. I thought that would be an interesting topic for us to discuss, both just our own experiences with that, as well as just what we see in the culture around us, and particularly as it pertains to men and anger. And really, I had been thinking about this as a topic ever since, I forget which episode it was, but fairly early on, I remember we were talking a little bit about anger, and I was saying that anger, I felt, was one of my primary emotions that I are most commonly felt emotions and that I thought that was true for most men and a lot of men have anger issues. And But then you kind of jumped in with, well, actually, I kind of find it hard to get in touch with my own anger sometimes. And that's not necessarily the first one I jumped to. And I was like, oh, well, we should talk about that. That's an interesting conversation. And I'm sort of, I guess, putting forth the notion that men are angrier than women and that anger is one of the most common emotions that men express. I'm open to being wrong about that, but that's sort of where my experience lands and interested to hear about your experience with that as well. You know, it's also somewhat of a timely topic. There was sort of a national news item. There was a a situation happened where a man was asking a woman for uh, her number just to get, you know, he was hitting on her basically. And she was like, no, I don't want to do that. And it became a, a serious situation when he got so angry that he hit her in the face with a brick. Yeah, I just thought that was 
in many ways, perfectly encapsulates a lot of the different things that we've talked about here on the podcast as it pertains to men and masculinity, and particularly today, anger, that this man was so enraged at his perceived rejection that he was willing to undertake physical violence in full view of other people such that it became a national news story. So lots of different directions we can go when we're talking about anger and men, no doubt about it. For sure. I think I want to make a distinction between anger and violence. This guy didn't hit a woman in the face with a brick because he was angry. You can be angry and not be violent or not be aggressive or not cause harm to anyone else. You can experience the emotion of anger. And so I think it's important to make a distinction between those two things and say the feeling of anger is a normal part of life. And we all will experience being angry. It's okay to be angry. Anger isn't necessarily wrong or bad to feel angry, but none of that is a justification for allowing your anger to become violence or aggression or to create fear or harm to anyone else. You know, when we say it's okay to be angry, I don't mean it's okay to hit people in the face with a brick. (laughs) That's not what I mean when I say like, it's okay to feel your anger and experience anger. And that's not inherently bad or wrong to be angry. But it is emblematic of the fact that there's a sense from many men, not just that they experience anger a lot, but they don't have control in some way or their anger takes over and they have to express it in ways that are aggressive or violent in some way that they just feel is like they're somehow taken over by the anger and lose rationality or the ability to make decisions or whatever in a way that I don't think is reasonable or true, even though it can feel true to people that are experiencing it. I think you make a great point about anger is a legitimate emotive response to certain situations. If you see a man hit a woman with a brick and you become angry with him, that is an appropriate response. Yes. Now, if you then pick up the brick and start beating the hell out of him with it, that's not necessarily the healthiest expression of that anger, right? And so, yes, with anger, it's about what are harmful expressions of anger, what are unhealthy expressions of anger, what are helpful expressions of anger, what are unhelpful expressions of anger. But I think it is important to note that anger doesn't necessarily have to always have a negative impact or a negative connotation. You can be angry and nonviolent. There are any number of Martin Luther King writings and sermons where he is filled with righteous anger. Right. Yeah. As pertains to how poor people were being treated or black people were being treated or all the different social justice causes that he took up. And there is a significant amount of righteous anger that he expresses. Yeah. And he was also expressly nonviolent in his methods to address that. Yeah. And that's sort of an extreme example, but it's certainly a good ideal for us to hold when it comes to anger, particularly with men. The issue with men and anger isn't men are so angry and they should never be angry. It's more, I think, about how we express that anger. Yes. And also, I do think an important component is understanding anger as a secondary emotion. And what we mean by that when we say that is when we're feeling anger, typically there is another underlying primary emotion to that that really is the driver And then the anger is what's being expressed at the surface. But actually beneath that is sadness, frustration, fear, hurt, abandonment, vulnerability. And the anger is sort of a masking agent for those more primary emotions. And that's a particular issue for boys and men, because I'm convinced that for for most of us, certainly in the 35 and up range were generally raised to have a minimal expression of our emotional range as boys, whether it was explicitly told to us by parents, teachers, and other folks, or whether we just picked it up from different cultural suggestions, but that, you know, we raise boys and girls, generally speaking, to experience and express emotions in different ways. And for a lot of boys, and then we become men, don't have a wide range of emotional expression. And so we do feel some of these primary emotions, we are afraid, we are vulnerable, we are embarrassed, we are frustrated, we are sad, but we aren't in touch with that. Or we are in touch with it, but we feel like we can express that and still be a man, be masculine. But anger, on the other hand, is okay. And so often that one gets picked up and put out there and then has an impact that is often negative, but doesn't have to be, as we said earlier. Yeah, That's a big part of it for me in this discussion is just understanding that, again, from my 
perspective, and certainly in my own personal experience, having a lack of awareness of my own more deeper emotional life as a boy and as a young man really hampered my ability to give a full expression of those emotions. And I often found myself relying on, I don't really feel anything, or I'm kind of numb to feeling, or I'm feeling something and I don't like it and I'm angry about it. And then- yeah that elevating my tone of voice or becoming more snarky or sharp or passive aggressive or other ways that that anger might come out. I don't know that I was, I'm a particularly physically violent person, but I certainly know that some of the communication tones and words that would come out of my mouth in an angry state could have a a violent impact on other people's energy and emotions and situations. And so I do have to own that for myself over time, that there have certainly been times when anger has gotten the best of me because I wasn't in touch with the emotions that were driving it. And I've said and done things out of anger that I certainly regret. All of that makes good sense. And I I certainly think when it comes to men, one of the issues with anger is the sense that anger is the only emotion that many men are in touch with. (laughs) You know, it's like, I either have no emotion or I'm angry. Those are my only emotions. Right. And I think when that gets expressed in that way or when, you know, when we encounter people who are experiencing that, men and boys who are living in that situation and feel like the only thing they can really access is anger. I think that is the place to recognize the role of anger as a secondary emotion. That is really an important thing to understand is that often the anger that we're feeling is because we don't want to feel whatever the underlying emotion is. Particularly, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of negative emotions like embarrassment, like Asking a woman for her number and her saying no is embarrassing. That's an embarrassing situation. And it's also feels you feel rejected. But a lot of times people don't want to feel embarrassed and they don't want to feel rejected. And so they then get angry about the fact that they're feeling those other feelings that they don't want to feel. I think anger functions both as a primary emotion and as a secondary emotion. There are situations where an appropriate emotional response is anger. As we said earlier, when you were talking about the best example to that for me is injustice. When you come up against injustice and see someone being treated in a way that isn't fair, isn't right, you experience a situation of understanding that the world isn't fair, doesn't treat people equally. Feeling angry about that is an appropriate response. But mostly when people struggle with anger, have difficulty with their anger. It's not because they have all these situations where anger is appropriate. It's because the anger is covering for all these other things that they don't want to feel. And so I think, you know, in terms of men dealing with anger, I think that is the primary issue is beginning to help men to be able to peel back some of the layers and understand what's going on underneath and what it is that they're really feeling that they're then getting angry to cover up or to avoid having to feel. Yes, thinking of anger as a starting point of investigation rather than sort of this end-all, be-all of expression. Of course, the other side of that too is I also have experience talking with people where I'm picking up an angry vibe and I feel like, oh, this person is really angry. And then I'll be like, hey, it seems like you're really angry. What's going on? And oh, no, I'm not angry. I'm annoyed. Oh, no, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. It seems like you're angry. And it's like, there's also this, on one hand, I feel like I'm making the argument that like anger is sort of the go-to emotion for, for most men. At the same time, there's a little bit of shame about being too angry and or, or really you shouldn't ever be angry. Both of those sort of coexist so that there becomes this denial even about the anger, right? So it's yeah. just like, it becomes, this like shaming, isolating cycle of, oh, I feel sad about this. That makes me angry. You seem angry. No, I'm not. What's your experience with that? I definitely have experienced having difficulty with expressing anger, particularly. I mean, I, you know, I went through a whole therapy. (laughs) Like I went to a guy as a therapist specifically because he was like the guy who helps you work on your anger, you know, and I didn't have like a big breakthrough to like getting in touch with my anger. But I think part of that is because I have a pretty wide range of emotions that I allow myself to feel. And so I don't have as much of that worry about having anger as a secondary emotion to cover up 
something else that I don't want to feel, you know, I'm usually able to identify like, well, I'm not really angry. I'm really, you know, hurt <laughs> or mm-hmm. I'm I'm not really angry. I'm really embarrassed. And so that tends to take, you know, some of the wind out of the sails of the anger, if you can understand what's going on underneath it. But at the same time, some of that is also, I think, about just cultural shame and feeling like I don't want to be the angry white guy or whatever. You know, I don't want to be just like the crazy angry guy. It's too stereotypical. It's too like, that's not what the world needs is another angry middle-aged white guy. So some of it, I think, is about sort of repression of that emotion because of feeling like no one wants to hear it from me. (laughs) You know, like nobody wants to hear me be angry. And so I do think some of that is me sort of tamping down some of those things. I don't sort of feel fully free to just be angry and like, scream and yell and hit things or whatever, because it just feels like that's scary to people. And I'm a big guy. And I, you know, if I was to get angry, it would like be scary for other people to see me being angry. And and I don't want to scare anybody, you know? So it's like, I don't want to really just let myself feel the anger and be and express it in a physical way, because I think like, It's going to cause more harm for me to express it than it is to just hold it in. Do you feel like that's something that has shifted for you over time? Were there moments where you felt like that perhaps wasn't the case when you talk about like, I do feel like I have a full range of emotions that I allow myself to experience and process. Was that sort of always the case? Was that sort of the upbringing you had? Or was that more of a, I used to not be this way and then this happened and it kind of woke me up or was it a gradual transition over time or what was that experience like for you just sort of evolving as a person who has a full range of emotional expression? Yeah, it certainly wasn't always the case. And I think, you know, for a lot of my life, I didn't have a particularly diverse experience of emotions or an ability to sort of interrogate my own emotions or think about what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? And sort of look at those things and understand them. That's been, you know, a relatively new experience for me. And over the last decade or so, you know, even in the last few years, I feel like that's accelerated and my ability to sort of really try to feel my feelings, experience them, understand where they're coming from. I've heard people say that the sort of physical experience of most emotions lasts about 90 seconds. But if you really like let the feeling come in your Mm -hmm. body and sort of wash over you and don't try to fight it, let whatever you're feeling just happen to you, it'll sort of work its way through your system in about 90 seconds. But that what happens is, and this is where anger is a thing, is like, The anger is a way of not allowing yourself to feel that emotion. I have had the experience, and I know other people have too, of being, I can be angry for a day or a week or, you know, a month or, you know, for decades, I can just, I can keep being angry to avoid having to feel that feeling for 90 seconds, you know? So it's like, once you sort of like have the experience of understanding, like, you know, you can let the feelings come and you can experience them. You can survive it. It's not going to kill you. It's it's not unbearable and it's not going to last that long. Every situation that's causing you to have an emotion Sometimes those situations persist for a long time and it's not like that good just goes away. But the actual yes. physical experience of the emotion, if you let it come, you can get through it relatively quickly and then you can figure out, okay, well, how am I going to respond? What steps do I want to take? But the anger keeps that from happening. At times when anger clearly is a secondary emotion to mask other underlying emotions, it seems clear to me that part of what really ratchets up the intensity of the anger is the degree to which the underlying emotion is being resisted. One of my understandings around like pain and suffering is that we're all going to experience pain in this life. But to the degree that we are experiencing deep, intense suffering is directly related to our resistance to that pain. And so when we have the pain and we're resisting it, our suffering goes up as opposed to finding ways to embrace, work with, acknowledge the pain itself. Right. Yeah. And I think similarly about anger, that when we have these other emotions that we're experiencing, be they abandonment, fear, hurt, frustration, sadness, whatever, and we are resisting allowing those feelings to take their natural course through our body to consider them with our consciousness and 
feel it in our body, allow it to process through and then move on. When we resist that, the energy of that emotion just builds up and then is expressed in anger in some way. And the more intense the feeling, the more we're resisting it, the more intense the anger gets, the more it gets harder to manage, control, express that anger in anything that is non-harmful, non-violent, and the damage is done from there, right? Yeah. And so I really love what you were saying there earlier, just in terms of like sort of acknowledging the ways that there's some built-in resistance for a lot of us guys to, for some of us, any feelings at all, but in particular, certain feelings that are related to, I think, shame in particular, embarrassment, fear, sadness. Those are unhelpful emotions for the men that we are supposed to be. Right. You just got to like keep a stiff upper lip and keep going to work and keep it going. Yeah. And you can do that for a short amount of time. You might some you might even be able to carry that out for a a longer period of time, but sooner or later it's just not sustainable. That's where a lot of us end up in places of confusion, broken relationships, careers that have fallen flat and feeling burnt out whenever we get to that point where we can't sustain that way of, you know, living and expressing our our emotions. Understanding the cultural context is important. It's not just that like as individuals, we haven't gotten in touch with our emotions or we've chosen to shut these things down. Like the culture that we're living in, the systems that we're a part of have been telling us and teaching us for our whole lives that as men, we're not supposed to have a broad range of emotions. We're not supposed to feel certain things. You know, it's it's girly or it's effeminate to feel love or passion or any of these positive emotions are less than. And we're also not supposed to feel embarrassed or jealous. We're being put in a box that's not of our own making that restricts what emotions we're allowed to have. But obviously, the longer that we're around, the more that we have to take responsibility for getting ourselves out of that box that we've been put in, even if we didn't necessarily choose to be in there in the first place. Would you say we've been put in a box or have we been put in a glass case of emotion? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely a glass case of emotion. I am entirely convinced that our human expression emotion is culturally dictated and it is dictated in our, in our culture differently for boys than girls, which becomes different expressions for men and women into adulthood. Yeah. And that is hard to break out of. That is conditioning that is baked in from the very beginning. And it really is difficult for those of us who are trying to do the work of get more in touch with our our emotions, express them in ways that are helpful, nonviolent, non-harmful, allow those emotions to enrich our lives in terms of our relationships and our abilities to be creative and enjoy life and produce what we want to produce with our careers and other kinds of work that we do. But it is work. (laughs) It's just because there is unlearning, there is deconstructing, there is confronting past wrongs and regrets that we have around ways that we expressed emotion poorly. Again, particularly in my case, I think anger. Yeah. But other ways too, in which I think I just was out of touch with certain emotions that I was feeling at the time, didn't know it, didn't see the clues and missed opportunities at work and in relationships because I just didn't have that level of awareness of my own emotions as well as the emotions of the people around me. Yeah. And that's a point of pain and sadness for me. Sure. That at times I get angry about. Yeah. Yeah. There's some grief there for me of, like I said, missed opportunities and mistakes made where it's a point of, in some ways, really complex grief to confront that in my own life and make amends where I can, but mostly just needing to like move forward in a way that is more integrated and enriched and enhanced for my own benefit as well as those around me. Does that mostly feel like for you, is that mostly regret around the impact that your anger had on other people around you? Or is it more your things that you were sort of robbed of or experiences you were robbed of by having that anger be pervasive? Both, I think. Although in that particular moment, I think I was just speaking in general about awareness of emotions Yeah. In general, more than just specifically anger. And so I think for myself, just feeling like I missed opportunities in relationship, romantic relationships, friendships, 
in other places where had I been more attuned, I would have been able to make healthier and more informed choices to the benefit of myself and others. And just sort of mourning the loss of those opportunities, mostly relationally, but part of the way I feel now about it is sort of angry, like angry that I was raised the way I was raised, angry that I didn't come to that conclusion sooner, angry that, and just, and sort of allowing that anger to be there and then say, okay, what's underneath it? It's loss, it's grief, it's sadness, it's disappointment. And then again, sort of letting those feelings be there as long as they need to, and then processing them and integrating them into choices that I make now so that I am more informed and more aware. One of the tools that I have found to be the most helpful for me is an emotion wheel. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's something you have used, but you can, I mean, there's a bunch of different ones. If you just Google emotion wheel, there's a half a dozen or a dozen different ones that people have made. And what an emotion wheel is, is basically just a a circle that has a bunch of emotions (laughs) written on it. The way it typically works is that closer to the middle of the circle has sort of bigger categories of emotion. And then... And so if you can, you look sort of close into the center of the circle to try to find like the big category, how am I feeling? And then once you find sort of the bigger category, you move more toward the edge of the wheel and there's a breakdown of more specific different emotions that are broken down within that. There's a lot of them. Like I said, the one I use that I like the most is from a a website called Human Systems, humansystems.co, and they have a number of different emotion wheels. I have found that tremendously helpful for myself in terms of just finding ways to get in touch with what I'm feeling. I try to use it when I'm actually experiencing an, you know, an emotion, particularly a strong emotion. I try to like pull out the emotion wheel and figure out like, all right, where am I on the wheel? What am I really feeling? And it's amazing how much just reading the word, when I read the word and I'm feeling the emotion, I know that's the right one. <laughs> you know, So it's like if I'm just reading, like, am I feeling? abandoned or lonely or bored or humiliated or overwhelmed or disgusted. And I'll be like, disgusted. That's as soon as I read it and I say it, like, I know, like, yes, disgusted. That's what I'm feeling. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just helpful to have a tool to help sort of put a name on what I'm feeling. And I think that is a way that can be helpful to get to those primary emotions that are underneath the anger. Yeah, the feelings wheel, the emotion wheel, that's a helpful tool. And again, one that did not exist in my life until like, I don't know, a few years ago. I don't yeah. know. I don't know when the emotion wheel was invented, but it's not something I would ever saw. It was not part of my education. It was not part of my the way I was parented. And again, I'm not I'm not blaming anybody for that. It's the way it is. And and like I said, that's what I mean when I say some of these things are changing. Of course, there's a, a lot of pushback on the conservative side of things, but there is this thing called social emotional learning, which is a curriculum for teaching children social skills and emotional regulation skills and how to identify and process their feelings that is, to my way of thinking, way more important than being able to name all the presidents correctly in order yes, or exactly. whatever yes. other, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic subjects, which isn't to say those aren't, those are unimportant, but I put this one really high up and a lot of you know, social emotional learning has been around for at least a couple decades, but has become more prominent in the last five to 10 years in certain circles, definitely more progressive circles. But you'll see it in a lot of private schools have integrated that into their curriculum and some public schools too. And again, a lot of public schools are getting pushed back on that from more conservative parents who, yeah, they don't want the school teaching their children how to feel and social skills and emotional regulation. They are against that. But yes, high marks for the emotion wheel, a great tool for like, if you're a person who is frequently being like, I'm not really sure how I'm feeling. I don't know how I feel. It's a great tool to whip out and take a look at. And for anyone who's working with children or adolescents in any capacity, it's also great to connect with them, especially. Yeah. You know, all of us have a, all of us have a physical age and an emotional age. (laughs) And I am, you know, I'm 50 
physically, but my emotional age, I'm just going to say it's less than 50. And I'm playing catch up with my emotional maturity. Whereas some people are having a more advanced emotional state and good for them. They're 50, but they're like an 80 year old in emotional awareness and regulation skills. So, yeah, but I'm a little behind. And so tools like the feeling wells are, are really helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I love about even this this one that I like from Human Systems. They actually have three levels, emotion wheel one, two, and three. And so it's like the first one is like the most basic in terms of it has the least amount of options. And it's like, if you're just starting out for kids or for adults or whoever, that's like, just use level one. And then you can kind of move through as you get more used to anything with kids. It's like, okay, you're feeling a strong feeling. Let's find it on the wheel. What are you feeling? Can you identify the feeling on this wheel and point to it? It just seems like 75% of people cannot do that, like of all ages. You know, it just, it feels like that is not something we are empowering people and teaching them how to do. And so it just seems like that is, would make everyone's life better, <laughs> both for our own internal experiences and for living in a society with other people. If people could, on a basic level, identify their own feelings and name them and have some sense of how to regulate them or tolerate them. Most of us didn't get that, that are our, from our generation. No doubt about it. Yes. If you're a man finding yourself frequently or even infrequently angry, see if you can do a little investigation with that and think of your anger as a entry point, uh, a place to be curious, a place to investigate and see what lies beneath that. Take that emotion and point it inward and be like, huh, what's going on here? What's this about? What else am I feeling underneath this anger or in addition to this anger? What's next to this anger? However, you might conceptualize it. But that would be sort of my final final word is just to think about how you use anger, how you relate to anger and ways in which you might consider shifting that, becoming more curious about it, seeing what lies beneath it. The thing you touched on there that I I also wanted to mention too, is like a lot of times with anger, as with any emotion, when we experience the emotion, sometimes the first thing that we do is jump to, I want to change the external circumstance that's causing me to feel this way so that I won't feel it anymore. Right. A good example is jealousy, where it's like, my girlfriend is talking to another guy and I feel like she's kind of flirting with him and that makes me jealous. But rather than just like sitting with the jealousy and trying to feel it and experience it, I want to be like, you're not allowed to talk to any other guys. <laughs> you know, like I want to change the external circumstance of like, if she just wouldn't ever talk to another man, then I wouldn't feel this feeling anymore. And I think men especially tend to jump to, how can I change the circumstances? How can I change what other people are doing? How can I change the laws? How can I change whatever needs to happen externally so that I won't have to feel this feeling anymore that's uncomfortable, rather than just learning how to tolerate having the feeling? 100%, yes. Yeah, we often were gonna jump to problem solving, like, I don't like this feeling. How can I make it so I don't have this feeling? Yeah. <laughs> Not how do I tolerate this feeling? How do I regulate this feeling? How do I work with this feeling? What is it about this situation that's making me have this feeling? Like, again, like adopting stances of tolerance and curiosity and investigation rather than I never want to feel this way. This feels terrible. I'm going to control the situation, change the situation, quote unquote, fix the situation. When yeah. it's like, mm, situations make us feel things. That's life. What are some other ways to look at it? There was that situation with Jonah Hill, the actor that like came out that his like ex-girlfriend. Yes. You know, revealed these text messages of him being like, I don't ever want you to wear a bikini on Instagram. I don't ever want you to, you know, be friends with guys. And it's like, again, that's an example of like, when this happens, it makes me feel something and I don't want to feel that. And so I wanted you to change what you're doing so I don't have to feel this. And I'm not saying it's never appropriate to like in a relationship to have conversations, but it's like, that's like, what should come after dealing with just feeling the experience, asking questions about it, being curious about it, as you said, and trying to figure out where that comes from and what it's doing in us and not jumping to like forcing everyone else to stop doing things that make us feel things. Yeah, lesson there, don't date a surfer if you don't <laughs> want to see pictures of her in a bikini on her Instagram. You know, like right. go find yourself a banker. 
yes. maybe don't date a surfer if yeah. you don't want to see pictures of her in bathing suits. Whose professional attire is wearing a bathing suit. Yes, that seems. That's that's a you issue. That's for you. Right. That's for you, That is Jonah. a you thing. Yeah. You could spend a little more time on the you side of that equation and less on trying to get other people to do what you want. Exactly. All right. Well, should we move on to our picking teams? Yeah. Good discussion. Neither of us broke down. We didn't get too angry about it. So I think we got to no. move on to picking teams. And yeah, this is such a fantastic topic, especially to go with the anger discussion mm-hmm. moving into clowns and clowning. All yeah. right. Top clowns of all time. Let's get to it. Top clowns of all time. Let's flip that coin. I'm going with my gut again. Heads. Tails. Dang it. Gut. The gut. Not coming through. I really felt like I was on to something when I won it last week, but I guess not. I mean, maybe you, it really is two in a row. May, maybe it really is just chance and you don't win them all. But <laughs> Are you hoping my, to get to a situation where you win every week? Yes. Is that, is I'm that just what you're so, hoping to get I'm to? I'm so damn competitive that when I don't win, it really <laughs> makes me, let's be honest, angry. And, you know, that fuels me to get better next time. So I'm just in search of like, what's the method that will allow me to win the coin flip? Every yeah, time. I don't know that's how much better you can get at picking heads and tails. That just seems like that's a rough. We're at 20. Like, have I won 10 and lost 10? Do we know? Is I don't know. Keeping we'll track? Have, I'm sure we have some super fans out there who are Surely tracking. one of our super fans is tracking the coin flip. <laughs> Send us an email at breakingdownmen at gmail.com. Let us know how many coin tosses Jim has won and how many he's lost. So we get a sense of whether the the odds have evened out over the course of 20 if it's not at least 11 to 9 i'm gonna be like (laughs) genuinely frustrated (laughs) like i'm doing something wrong you're doing something wrong. all right well i'll take the first pick and i think i'm gonna go for my top clown of all time bozo the clown bozo to me is just like the foundational the the primary the gold standard for clowns. It all comes back to Bozo. I remember watching Bozo on TV when I was a kid. He came on the WGN from Chicago. WGN Chicago. On the, yeah. On the cable system. I don't even know if that show was, if they were still making it or if that was just reruns because that show was on, like it started in like the 60s or something, but it ran for forever. You know, that was my like introduction to clowns with the red hair and the white makeup and the big uh, red nose and just you know, funny and goofy with the big shoes. In some ways, all other clowns to me is like, it all comes back to Bozo as like the beginning of the whole clown thing for me. So I'm going to have Bozo on my team. And Bozo, it seems, is like different people have been Bozo over the course of Bozo's career. Like Bozo is, you know, it's like James Bond in a sense where it's like different. There have been different Bozos Mm -hmm. that have a little bit of shades of difference, but the character persists as like a cultural icon. Bozo was my number one pick too. That's where I would have gone. I think he is the classic television clown, huge longevity. I definitely watched the grand prize game as much as I could with Bozo the clown. And he just seems like the preeminent American clown on which other clowns, other television clowns have been based, but he's yeah, it all, it all kind of starts with Bozo and just the name Bozo. Like, yeah, Bozo can't be anything else but a clown. Whereas like some of the other clowns, I feel like you kind of have to say the clown or something else. But it's just like when you say Bozo, like to the extent like it's just you could be like, oh, he's such a Bozo. And it's like, oh, I know we know the the clown part is implied when you just say Bozo. Yeah, it's like it's like Bono or Madonna. It's like you just know Bozo the clown. Yes. And so I I think Bozo is definitely the MVP of the clowns in my world. And I'm going to take also one of the more well-known clowns globally, I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sure. Which is the the one and the only the great Ronald McDonald. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Obviously. Because, you know, he's such such a joyful, happy character with really crazy red hair and the big red smile and just, you know, McDonald's has been around for, I don't know what, 70 something years, plus or minus, I would guess. Yeah. And it's just a persistent 
part of American culture. And certainly, at least with my family growing up, we didn't do a ton of fast food. But for road trips or on Friday night after the football game, everybody hanging out, especially when we were younger, like middle school, you yeah. just you went to McDonald's and hung out and you got a milkshake. And if Ronald McDonald was there making an appearance, it was just, you know, like it was just a huge, huge thing. Plus, he's a good guy. He's got his Ronald McDonald houses next to the yeah. hospitals where the families can stay when the kids get in cancer treatment or whatever the Ronald McDonald house does. So on one hand, maybe Ronald McDonald is making significant contributions to childhood obesity. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, he's raising money for support the families of kids with pediatric cancer. So, I mean, he has to be one of the most recognized, just his face, his persona, his appearance has to be one of the most recognizable clowns in the world, I would think. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I, I can't imagine there's another clown that's more recognizable than Ronald McDonald. And definitely associated with fun, with good times, with family. McDonald's is like not your everyday food. McDonald's is a special treat that you get for when something good happens right. for your birthday, for after a victory of a sports victory or something. You get Ronald McDonald represents the like the fun, bringing the fun, the joy. So I, I think that's very, very clown like. Yeah, solid pick, solid pick. I'm going to go for my next pick to Krusty the Clown from The Simpsons. I'm a big fan of The Simpsons. It's been on forever. It's one of the best comedy shows of all time. And Krusty the Clown has been a mainstay on The Simpsons for, you know, a long, long time. And they sort of have used him as a kind of a window into sort of the world of show business that he's like his character is this sort of grizzled show business veteran veteran who's like has this TV show, but also smokes cigars and lights them with $100 bills and has a big mansion and has a gambling problem and just all these like they use him as like a window into like the excesses of Hollywood as this character of, of Krusty the Clown. So a lot of really funny episodes and, and pieces from The Simpsons have been based around Krusty. So definitely a clown icon in my world. Definitely a clown icon. Although I will say I will be critical of this pick for your team because I mm -hmm. really just feel like Krusty is the poor man's Bozo. Mm. Krusty, it seems to me, is based on Bozo the Clown. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so I'm like, you already have the bozo on your team, do you really need the poor man's bozo? But now, to be fair, he's not poor, and no. he is he is a 30-plus years in television icon and is a hilarious character on one of the longest-running, hilarious genius shows of all time. But still, to me, a poor man's bozo. No, he's not a poor man's bozo. He's a parody of bozo. So it's like I have both the authentic original clown and I have the like parody clown that's like poking fun at the excesses of that clown life and undercutting the bozo life with this underbelly of dark comedy. It fits together as befitting my personality of a bright side and a dark side. Gotcha. Okay. That's a reasonable explanation. <laughs> Well, I also am delving into the world of show business and long-running mm -hmm. television shows, live action, cartoon, mm. movie franchises, mm, okay. feature films, and I'm taking The Joker. The Joker. The Joker. All right. Maybe the greatest cartoon villain of all time. I yeah, think you can make that argument. I'm sort of a surface level comic book fan. I didn't collect comics and I kind of just know the main group of heroes and villains when it comes to comics. But right, right. He's certainly the biggest, most prominent villain in my comic book world. And I have heard people that are more knowledgeable than me make the argument that he is one of the top, if not the top sort of cartoon villains, comic book villains. I wanted a bad guy on my team. And yeah, you gotta you know, have a bad guy. He also, like you were mentioning, Bozo's been played by different actors, been portrayed in slightly different ways. And same thing with Joker, like different actors have put their spin on the Joker. Most notably in live action, Jack Nicholson back in the 90s. 
and Heath Ledger won an Oscar for his portrayal, a yeah. posthumous Oscar, right? Yeah. Of, of his portrayal of the Joker in the film, The Dark Knight, which is one of the greatest superhero films of all time. And so, yeah, I just feel like the Joker figures prominently in one of the greatest superhero franchises, the Batman franchise. And part of that is the interplay between Batman and Joker. And so right. this sort of like maniacal, crazy, evil greedy villain his superpower is his level of crazy like that's what because he's just a person like he doesn't fly he doesn't have super strength he's just this like criminal organized criminal genius who's good at stealing stuff and being a pain in batman's side his ability to manifest crazy in a joking but dark kind of way is his superpower yeah i think that's a good pick it's a solid the joker as a character has certainly is persistent it seems to keep coming back and back as you said a number of wonderful actors have undertaken to perform as the joker i think it's interesting that batman had both the joker and the riddler as two different bat villains that he mm-hmm. battled but like mm-hmm. the joker has definitely much more cultural cachet than the riddler and yeah i also think it's fun that your team has ronald mcdonald and the joker feels like bookends in the right. same way for me, as like Bozo and Krusty. It's like Ronald McDonald is like bringing the fun, the joy. And then you've got the Joker bringing like this dark, evil side of clownery, you know. So and wait till you see what my third pick is. It's going to bring it all together. <laughs> it's gonna you're going to love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, what if, but what if I take it though? You're not. There's no way okay. you're taking my third There's pick. There's no taking it. Okay. I don't, I'll be shocked. And I will be angry as well. <laughs> all right. Who are you picking? I'm between two, but I think I'm going to take Homie the Clown from In Living Color. From my childhood, I remember watching In Living Color when that show first came out. Loving Homie the Clown. Famous for his catchphrase, Homie don't play that. And it seems to me, like I went back and watched some of the sketches, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Like, It's just that homie the clown is just like irrationally angry about his lot in life of having to be a clown. I remember homie being, that's what I remember. I remember homie being angry. It was that Damon Wayans. Is that who? Yeah. Damon Wayans as, as homie the clown who was like, he had like a, like a sock thing that he would like bash children on the head with. And it was just like, <laughs> was it kids, like a sock of coins or something? Or I mean, I don't know what it was supposed to be, but it, he would just like swing it and hit them with it and be like, homie, don't play that. And it was like the kids just wanted joyful, fun clownery and homie did not want to provide it uh, and just was like a sullen, angry clown. It always made me laugh. And I still say sometimes when we don't play that, which I don't know if I can culturally get away with that, but I still do it. And it's like, I feel like that entered the lexicon as, you know, like an expression that has outlived the sketch or the show itself. I love it. I mean, it's obscure. It It's very targeted to our, you know, our primary audience, the fellow Gen <laughs> Xers who love that brand of comedy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Homie the Clown. Good. That's a great. The clown. I mean, that and that to me defines like a good third pick. I always try to come up with at least one that I'm pretty sure you would, would not even been thought of. And I will oh. say I did. Homie was not on my radar. Homie was like one of the first ones I thought of. Yeah, I I watched In Living Color a little bit, but I wasn't obsessed with it the way I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live. So I'm aware of it and I know some of the people who were on it and Jim Carrey and Fireman Bill or whatever and different, you know, some of the other characters, but I don't, I was not just the white people That's who you know from it, right? Right. Well, I I knew Damon Wayans was Homie the Cloud. So, you know, (laughs) but uh, yeah. So was Jim Carrey the only white person on the show? Yeah, he was the only white man. And then there was like one white woman and everyone else was black pretty much. Yeah. But yeah, ironically, he became the most well-known person from that yeah. show, even though he was the only the only white guy and six black comedians, male black male comedians and and him. But that's the times we were living in. But yeah, Homie the Clown, hilarious. And also a piece of my heart still belongs to Homie the Clown. Well, great third pick. Big props to you. That's a fantastic pick. And it was not my third pick. My third pick is safe. And I, I'm sure a lot of people listening 
are going to think that I would be choosing Pennywise, uh, the sure. Stephen King clown, who there's been the two It movies have been in the last four or five years. And even before the movies, you know, the Pennywise was sort of a, the preeminent horror clown. Right, right. But again, I feel like I, I filled my evil slot with the Joker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who I yeah. think is a is more of a top clown than Pennywise is. Yeah, agreed. I'm really, like you said, I got Ronald, who's like super happy, super nice. I got the Joker, who's like super evil. And I'm looking for something in the middle, like a little apathetic, um, just just trying to make it through his day, mm. you know? And he was immortalized in the 1959 hit by the Coasters. And I'm talking about Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. He's a clown, that Charlie Brown. Oh, man. Yes. So I'm sneaking in Charlie Brown onto my team. And if you don't know the song, just look it up. I grew up on the oldies. At least one listener, that would be my dad, is super excited about this pick because I know he can sing the whole song just like I can. Right. But yeah, Charlie Brown. But is the Charlie Brown of the song the same Charlie Brown from the beloved cartoon? Yes, absolutely. It is? the same, yes, yes. You're just just claiming that, but it's- No, it's true. It's true. This yeah. was the song written about the cartoon character. Yeah, just he's just this kid who's in the class and he just can't seem to get anything right. You know, like who walks in the classroom cool and slow? Who calls the English teacher daddy? Yo, Charlie Brown. Do 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 do. Charlie Brown. Do 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 do. He's a clown. Do 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 that. Charlie Brown. You know, and then he says he's gonna get caught. Just you wait and see. And he says, why is everybody always picking on me? And that's like Charlie Brown, you know? He's like, just <laughs> let me walk into the classroom cool and slow and leave me around. But everybody's always picking on him. Lucy's always pulling the football away. And at the end of the day, he's a clown. Mm-hmm. Charlie Brown's a clown. All right. Yeah, taking Charlie Brown. The song is not a reference to the oh, Peanuts character of come the same on. name. <laughs> no using Google during the podcast to fact check. <laughs> oh, come check. on. How dare you? Yes, I will give you, as as for your team, the Charlie Brown referenced in the Coaster song, but uh, not extending that to Charlie Brown. Not George, not George Schultz's Charlie Brown. Yes, exactly. The Coasters. That is a funny song, though, and I had not thought, I have not thought of that song for 30 years or whatever. When we were talking before the show, that some something you said made me think of that song. Some nice. way you said clown made that song like immediately popped into my head. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this will be a fun pick. I'm going to pick Charlie Brown. I like it. Yeah, I like the solid pick. Yeah, I do want to give a shout out to my other pick was going to be Bill Irwin. When I saw the name Bill Irwin as a clown, I was like, I don't know who that is. But then when I saw his picture, I was like, I knew immediately who it was. He was in the video of Don't Worry, Be Happy, mm-hmm. doing like clowning stuff. And he also did a, a performance on an episode of The Cosby Show where he like did a little clowning. So I immediately when I saw his picture, I was like, oh, I know that guy. So shout out to Bill Irwin for his clowning influence Bill on Irwin. my, my okay. young life. Yeah. I mean, not the influence that was had by Homie the Clown, but. Right. Or the Coasters Charlie Brown. Coasters Charlie Brown obviously had the most influence of all. All right, well, we should bring this episode to a close. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. Send us an email at breakingdownmen at gmail.com. And anything else you want to say before we end the episode, Jim? No, we're good. Breaking Down Men.